This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. <clears throat> okay, uh, look, if you want to just keep doing the same old thing, then maybe this idea is not for you. I, for one, am not going to compromise my artistic integrity. And I'll tell you something else. This is the show, and we're not going to change it. Right? <laughs> How about this? You don't like the Drake. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. You like the Drake? I love the Drake. What about the Drake? Oh, screw the Drake. I love the Drake. This is Cam Bowen, voice of Tim Drake on Young Justice, and you're listening to Everyone Loves the Drake. Hi, this is James Tynan IV, and I love the Drake. This is George Perez at Cincinnati Comic Expo, and everybody likes the Drake, especially the cakes. Hi, this is Mark Wolfman, and everyone loves the Drake. Hi, this is Marcus Toe, artist for Red Robin. You've been listening to Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake podcast. Good for them. Love the Drake. Got to love the Drake. I'm impressed. What can I say? I'm irresistible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake comic podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rob Myers, and I'm going to pause. Like, if this hasn't been long enough, it feels really good to say that again. The four-month hiatus is over. More on that in just a second. If you are new to the show, welcome aboard. And if you're an old-time listener... Thank you for sticking with the show. But welcome to Robin Everyone Loves the Drake, a comic book podcast, a chronological look at the character starting in 1989, and currently in our timeline, it is 1996 for the character. Like I said, I'm Rob. Welcome to episode 135. And with me is a voice that you've heard on this show before. He was on a satellite show, Everyone Loves Young Justice, but he is now on the show properly, Mr. Jay Yaws. How are you doing this afternoon, sir? I am doing great, Rob, and I am glad to be here. <laughs> it is so cool. Now, it's very cool to have you officially a part of the show. I, we should have done this from the get-go. We started doing Young Justice and folded the whole ball in together, but more on that probably later on down. So right around September, we were gearing up to, if you've already clicked on the link, you know, this is going to be Superboy and Robin world's finest number, number three world's finest three. (laughs) See, it's been a little too long folks. World's finest three. When this was set to originally go in September of 2021, and we were figuring out the 
initial initial idea was to get Chuck Dixon back on the show and go through this. That was what the long game was going to be for. And that obviously didn't work out quite right. We thought, let's bring on somebody else. And then one week led into another week of scheduling conflicts, and it just kind of kept going and going. And before I realized it, I was like, I think I need a break. Almost nine years, the better part of eight years, the show has been in existence from December 13th, 2013, if you want to do the math. And I didn't realize that you're just turning the show out and then Young Justice kind of came along that it's been pretty much nonstop and then bouncing around to some other shows. And I think once I had a moment to kind of take a breath, I was like, oh, we'll start up next month. Oh, we'll start up next month. And then it was like, well, let's get out of the holiday season. Well, let's get out of the new year. In that time, Jay had been picking up Robin issues and sending me messages. You were kind of doing that, I think, with Young Justice of kind of starting to re-finish your collection of Robin issues. So over the course of this break, you would be sending me messages of like, hey, I got these books and hey, I got these books. So in the latter part of December going into January, I was like, oh, let me let me pull out a couple issues that you got. So I'd thumb through and I'd read those. I'm like, oh, that's that's a fun read. <laughs> we should we should talk about that one of these times. I'm like, well, we're going to. Hey, idiot, you have a podcast. <laughs> Maybe you should just do it on the podcast that you already started and hope that Dustin didn't delete the Batman universe account for Robin. <laughs> Everyone loves the Drake. So a big part of you going out and getting your books and I'd like you to talk about, you know, kind of what led you to do that and all that. But it kind of gave that energy of like, is anybody really paying attention? And it was nothing more than a text message from a friend that was like, Hey, check out, I'm buying these Robin books. Now, before we get to Jay real quick, Terrence and Ryan would have been here, but we were originally going to record a week a week ago, I had a snowstorm, and we're supposed to get another one this coming Wednesday, believe it or not. Yeah, Terrence, um, I'm in Texas. It's supposed to uh, snow on Thursday, apparently. So this is – yeah, it's Yeah, this, this is our window that we've been actually <laughs> literally trying for a couple weeks to do this. And when Terrence and Ryan couldn't make it, Terrence was like, you've got to record and you've got to get this done. So uh, they will be here eventually on the – on a future episode, hopefully for the second part of this book, but they could pop in. We don't know. So Jay, uh, that long winded thing that I, that I just went through, (laughs) where were you in your Robin collection? Was this something you had just started and stopped or, you know, what, what kind of led you to want to complete it? Yeah. Well, well, first off, I'm, I'm glad I can be the uh, substitute for Chuck Dixon. So that's a, that's a, see, (laughs) I I, I was trying to, I was trying to, I was trying to weave that thread and it it was, To to pair up to that, it was I wanted this being a big book. I wanted to have a a group of voices to discuss this mm-hmm. as being the first meeting, and I thought no no offense against Terrence and Ryan, but I was like I just don't want the three normal knuckleheads to you know <laughs> be doing this book. And with having done the Young Justice show with you, I was like this is uh, this is already right in our wheelhouse, mm-hmm. and what a great vehicle to dovetail that show back into this one where these two characters first got their you know team up together so anyway back back to you sir no no no. um but uh, as for the robin collecting i got up to like issue 
like 83 or something way back, you know, up to like the year 2000, somewhere around there. I started collecting the title. I like to say it was issue 47 is the first like new issue that I bought like off the stands. And then I just went back and bought a bunch of back issues and everything I'd had in the, you know, 22 years since I have kept my, my Robin, my Tim, Tim Drake Robin uh, collection with, you know, all the original miniseries, Robin, mm-hmm. Cry of the Huntress, Joker's Wild. I may have flipped those two. I think it's Joker's Wild, then Cry of the Huntress. Yes, yeah. Anyway, yep, yep. All, <laughs> all the annuals had, like, the Bloodlines annual, the, um, you know, the weird Elseworlds annual, the um, Eclipso annual. Uh, I had pretty <laughs> much every solo Tim Drake title up until, like I said, like, issue 83. And then just... Around that time, you know, just stopped stopped uh, reading comics as much. Was still into comics, but just kind of kind of stopped collecting. But I still kept them because I was like, well, this is a lot, and maybe one day I'll finish it. And just kept them, you know, all these years. But around this time last year, I uh, I popped into a comic book shop that has. Uh, I don't know how long it's been there, but uh, it's it's uh, pretty much right across the street from the church that I go to. And uh, my wife had even said, hey, we need to go there sometime just because, you know, it's a, it's a new comic book shop. So, so uh, one night after a Saturday service, I decided to pop in there. I was just uh, looking around. It's, it's a small shop, but they had a pretty decent back issue selection. And uh, just for fun, I went to the the R's in the DC section and started uh, thumbing through like all the Robin issues. And I was like, have it, have it, have it, have it, have it, have it, have it. But then there, I want to say there were like three issues they didn't have that were later on after I I officially stopped collecting. One of them, fun enough, let me let me see where it is. They're right behind here because I'm going to frame some of these. But one of the ones that I got, yeah, was Robin 118. That I'm is scrolling. actually. <laughs> that that's actually signed by the cover artist Phil Noto. Oh, um, nice! Yeah, I really like his style, and I was like, "Hey, a signed copy of this," and it was three bucks. I was like, "Heck yeah, mine!" Uh, <laughs> so, so I got that, and then there were like two other issues that I don't even remember which ones they were. I picked them up and uh, and bought them, but then I was like, you know, I'm really not feeling a lot of the current. Batman comics, just there's no, I mean, I love comics, I love reading them, I love talking about them, but the current, like, just comic scene, just current continuity, this was also around the time of, you know, Future State, which, you know, whatever, and and (laughs) all this stuff, but I was like, you know, I'm not really feeling this now, but I still love comics, still want to have an outlet, I was like, hey, how about I try to complete my Robin run, my Robin collection, and to this point, I mean, I had gotten up to issue 83 of Robin. So I still had another 100 issues of that title. I miss those days. I miss those days of like still on the hunt. Like, Oh, I need like random, like 116 and 92, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was, uh, fun and energizing, but, uh, I mean, I still had a hundred issues, a couple of specials and one shots, for that, and then the entire what twenty six issues of Red Robin mm-hmm. and everything to go. But I was like, you know, this could take me years, but at least it'll be something fun that I can constantly, you know, if I find a comic book shop, you know, see how many holes I can fill in. 
So over the course of the past year, anytime I would go to a comic shop, I would, you know, pop in and see what they had. And I was able to fill in a lot of it just myself. But then I had a couple of uh, friends like Justin Kowalski. He had uh, the Let's Go comic show. Yep. He had some back issues that he was trying to, you know, trim down on uh, his collection. So he asked me which ones I needed. I sent him my whole list and uh, he had a couple of them. So he sent me those and then a couple of other people sent them. And I purposefully tried to stay away from eBay as much as I could just because it's like, you know, it, it's it's more fun to actually go yes. dig through the bins and see what I can find uh, about the only ones that I – did that for were the ones that I was like, okay, I am probably never going to find this. There was a Robin and spoiler special. Mm. And then I think Robin annual number seven. And I was like, I mean, annuals can get really, really hard to come by, especially like latter day ones like that. So, so a couple of issues I bought off, uh, off the bay, but, um, uh, as the hip cool kids probably don't say it cause I'm not a hip <laughs> cool kid, but pretty much everything else I tried to get through comic shops and, uh, fan expo Dallas when it came back last gosh, September, I think it was, I filled up, I think in one day I got almost every single red Robin issue for a dollar. And that is brilliant. 26 yes. bucks out the door. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I also got like Robin 183 for $15, which was steep. But I was like, well, whatever. But then a couple of uh, where I got the red Robin issues, they had it for a dollar. So I was kicking myself, but I was like, okay, whatever. But I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was a mission. It was one of those things that made me realize what I loved about doing this as a kid when I first started collecting uh, comics. And then, I mean, like I said, over the past year, I actually managed to complete my Robin, my Tim Drake Robin and Red Robin collections going from, you know, maybe about a hundred, a little more issues in hand to over 250 issues, if not more. Yeah, I did it in like nine months. So that was kind of crazy. I also got Tim's first appearance. Batman uh, 436. I got 436. I got his first appearance in costume. So 442. Mm -hmm. And then, sorry, I'm reaching over and getting these out of my long box. (laughs) And then like the... uh, First appearance of Tim Drake officially as Robin in the, you know, brilliant Tim Drake costume in Batman oh. 457. I got those. I got that. Um, oh, gosh. That uh, what, what was it called? Sleigh Ride, that Detective Comics issue. I love that, that issue. Love I mean, it. It, that was after I'd completed everything. But I was like, OK, I mean, that's technically a solo Tim Drake issue. So, you know, why mm-hmm. not? It's a notable issue. Even got weird stuff like the. Arkham Knight Robin special. <laughs> that uh, that is a fun issue. Terrence and I it, covered it, that one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's like, I mean, it's not like Tim Drake proper from the, you know, uh, comics canon, but still it's a Tim Drake book. I got the Batman and Robin slash Red Robin issue of the new 52 series that oh, yeah. I, th- I think that one introduced Carrie Kelly into Carrie um, Kelly. Yeah. continuity. But I mean, I got that cause it was like, well, Batman and red Robin. So why not? <laughs> I mean, needless to say over the past, uh, the past year I've gotten back into collecting Robin and finished collecting Robin, but I've actually had this issue world's finest three parts one and two. I've had both of these since, you know, the late nineties when I started collecting 
and um, I actually bought these at a local mall. They used to have a uh, like a comic book stand in the middle of like one of the like foyer areas, kind of near some of the big anchor stores where it's a lot you know bigger and more foot oh, yeah. traffic. So I remember buying these two issues from that stand, and uh, so flipping back through it, I was like, man, we really need more of those comic stands in malls because you know that was that was a just really cool memory. Just you know going back to you know the late '90s when we would have stuff like this, but also yeah. being able to revisit this because uh, I flipped through it a couple of times over the years just to admire the art and everything. But I actually hadn't read this since. You know, like 97 or whenever I first read this. So it, it was fun to return to this. Yeah, this was this was something that was on the short list for the show. And, you know, thinking about nine, almost nine years ago, trying to put this together, I didn't know if I was going to do an index show, which is what this is, where you start, here you start at this issue and you move forward and you get as far as you get, whatever. Right. <clears throat> I was going to go, oh, we'll, get, we'll do this one and we'll bounce around. So once Terrence came on board... We started going, you know, let's tell the through line of Tim Drake and going, all right, you know, World's Finest 3 is one of those. And this is one I had bought. And I think I remember reading this when it first came out, but the second issue never read the second issue. So there were <laughs> there were books that were on my list of going, you know, once we start getting past the once we get into the 40s and some of the 50s there are issues i have never read because i was you know playing in some of my first bands at the time and you know all that stuff so i was in and out of comics and i mm -hmm. if you go back early part of the show when i was still picking up issues so you know a, a thing that i started doing jay when i was buying issues was okay now i got all the tim drake robin issues well now what so then I started going, well, Chuck Dixon was writing detective. So a lot of the detective stories tie in to the overall arc of everything. So this Dixon universe goes on. So then I started going, well, he was writing Birds of Prey and he was writing Catwoman and he was writing detective. So what if I just follow Tim everywhere he pops up? So that got to be you know, finding a needle in a haystack, then it was finding a thumbtack in a nice. haystack. <laughs> so that's when I started, you know, telling Terrence and Ryan, like, hey, Tim's in Birds of Prey, and it follows right around this issue. So don't be surprised, Jay, if I pull out a Birds, <laughs> Birds of Prey issue. But Thank, this, thank goodness yeah. for DC Universe Infinite. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, I've been kind of in the same boat, and I don't want to go down a, a whole thing. So... I've never commented on this before, and I'm going to loosely comment it on here. I've not been happy with the overall state of comics lately, and I've every week I'm constantly like, okay, I'm going to drop these books. I'm going to drop these books. I'm going to pare down. Mm -hmm. the, the enjoyment, and I've been having this issue. If you go back to our Young Justice episode <laughs> podcast where we were – I think both of us were literally struggling to get through those last few issues of the Bendis run. We've been through so many incarnations and versions of Tim Drake over the years where I know we on this show and you and I on the Young Justice were like pointing like, but look how good these characters were back during this time or back during this time. Not that you mm -hmm. can't move forward and all that stuff, but when a character is written so well and things are done and 
once you start making multiple changes in overall universe and stuff like that, Michael Bailey had said it on his show. He realized that DC Comics had showed him the door at a certain <laughs> point when he stopped buying current Superman comics. Yeah. He goes, when he started with the John Byrne Superman, that's where his entry point was. He says he's sure that somebody that loved Superman right before John Byrne came on probably dropped you know, Superman at that time. So he said, you know, comics are cyclical. You're going to find where DC opens the door. You choose to get on, you choose to get off. And he said, sometimes you get off and they just kind of show you the door. So I don't know if that's where I'm at in my, in my head of going, but I, but I always buy comics every week. Mm-hmm. And my wife is like, but there are so many back issues that you don't have and that you could still continue to buy comics every week. It may just not be the newest and greatest thing right now. She goes, but if the old stuff is the newest and greatest for you, then then why not hang your hat on that? So, exactly. Yeah, I mean, don't I do something say, out of obligation because you feel like you have to. You can you can change. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there there's kind of like the uh, mentality of you know every issue could be somebody's you know first comic. Right. It's like, well, I mean, there's always going to be. A, even if you've been reading comics for 20, 30 years, there's still going to be an issue that's going to be your first time reading that comic. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, you know, in a, in a sort of roundabout way, what sparked my wanting to complete my, you know, Tim Drake solo stuff is, I mean, I've had it for 20 years. I mean, like you, not, not exactly thrilled with a lot of what's going on with, uh, just publishing with new initiatives, start and stop continuity. And yeah, let's yeah. try this, throwing stuff at the wall, see what sticks and most of it not, but they're still, you know, just trying to, you know, uh, foist, changes to the universe and continuity and everything on everything to where it just, it's just not exciting to read anymore to me. But I mean, again, I mean, it could be someone's first, right. You know, introduction. So I'm not, I'm not deriding. It's just like you said, it just might not be that that's what is for me anymore. But going back, I mean, like you said, even though I collected up to issue, you know, 80, whatever, Back in the you know the late '90s, going into the early 2000s, I don't even know if I actually read the last handful of Robin issues that I bought before you know just deciding to to call it quits. So I mean, I know I've read every every one of those issues up through Cataclysm and No Man's Land and the couple of issues after that, like when Tim starts at like a boarding school or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's really the last. Tim Drake solo stuff that I really remember reading from back in the day. So even if I have read those before, going back and rereading them to follow along with the podcast here is going to seem fresh because I have no memory. <laughs> like I, I even pulled out some of those, some of the issues to look at the covers just to, you know, while I was cataloging to see which issues I need. And I'd be like, I have zero recollection of ever even touching this comic, let right. alone having it for the better part of two decades. And I think that's the that's the cool thing. Like I'm scrolling through as you've been talking, just the issues from Mike's Amazing World that I'm gonna reference here in a little bit. And I clicked on, you know, issue one well, not that one, because I read that issue. I forget <laughs> where it was now. Just lost it. This is where I'm going to edit. I think it was 164. Yeah. Issue 164. It's this wonderful Pat Gleason cover 
when he's in his one year later outfit and there's a kid down on the ground in the rain and Tim is looking up. I was like, I love that cover. I know nothing about this <laughs> particular issue. It's in the big leagues trade, which ironically I think I own for thanks to an Ollie's haul. Oh, nice. But just reiterating for the people, cause we're going to take a quick little promo break here in just a second before we get to our featured topic is that was the whole point of putting this show together was if I was doing nothing else other than just sitting down and reading a comic book that I collected some 20 years ago, where one day I can say I have read every single Robin issue, and this continues to underline why, for me, he is still my favorite character in the DC universe, regardless of what era that is. And I'm proud to have Tim Drake posters and action figures all about McFarlane. Give me my Tim Drake figure. Oh, seriously. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I want to continue to do with this show. So hopefully you will all enjoy hopefully the next nine years of the show. <laughs> and I promise you, we will start getting through these a little bit more, but I know Terrence is going to go, Oh, Rob, you know, this issue of Robin actually ties into a detective comics issue. So I know we'll still talk about Batman and some of the ancillary things that are going on. And I've been saying it for a while on the horizon, supporting cast, like that Batman guy. (laughs) Yeah. Like that Batman guy, (laughs) Robin's partner, Batman. So more on that in just a minute. Thank you for tuning in to Robin. Everyone loves Drake. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back in just a moment. There's just one last thing I haven't figured out yet. Who the second Robin was the dead one. I used to think it was Jason Todd because He was also a Bruce Wayne kid, but then I saw him the other night. You saw Jason Todd? The night my father was shot. He was standing across the street from the shop wearing a hoodie. And you recognized him from across the street? He walked like Robin. I studied him, too. It's nice to meet you, Tim. We'll meet again. get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast why you get the weird warriors podcast of course weird war tales was a 124 issue dc comic book series published from 1971 to 1983 along the way we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher there are also the rare road warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like can or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats. We'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right. We'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories, which is sometimes quite weird in its own right. Even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats. Zombie robots. Day-walking vampires. Gargoyle armies. And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. Never mind. I forgot who I was talking to. So what have you heard about our Tarzan guy? Still unconscious. But the police found out something interesting about him. He had acrophobia. Oh. 
It means fear of heights. No joke? All right, this is a book other than, you know, getting through Lonely Place of Dying, which is going to be, you know, early on, and then talking about Nightfall. Aside from the cataclysms in No Man's Land and all that, this was something that I know the three of us were wanting to talk about, and I'm glad that Terrence and Ryan, they will definitely be on the next episode talking about part two, but World's Finest. And right before the world went all crazy cuckoo, one of the last conventions I went to uh, was a Cincinnati Comic Expo, and I got to... Uh, meet Tom Tom Grumman again for like the third or fourth time. And every time I went to a convention where he was at, I always forgot to take these two books for him to sign. And so I was glad the last time I saw him, I was able to get him to sign both of these. And as soon as I pulled him down out of my bag, he was like, I had a really good time doing these two issues. Mm -hmm. He said, I wish the story lasted longer. And you could just tell through all of the pages, the amount of detail and care that he put into this book. Before we take a look at the synopsis, here are the credits for the book that I'm reading these from mikesamazingworld.com. The cover date is 1996 with an on-sale date of October 30th, 1996 with a whopping $4.95 for 1996 since this is a prestige format type of a book. The editor is Frank Pitteris. The credits for the issue are the writers in tandem are Carl Kessel and Chuck Dixon. The penciler is the wonderful Tom Grummet. The inker is Scott Hanna. The letter is Ken Lopez and the colorist is Scott Burnham. And the cover credits go to again, Tom Grummet and Inker being Scott Hanna. And now, Superboy and Robin in World's Finest 3, Book 1. A little brief history, Superman and Batman officially became partners in 1954 in issue number 71 of the original World's Finest series. This two-issue story continues the tradition with the likely successors of the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. In the swampy marsh of Gotham City, all is silent until Metallo arrives. He's been wasting his time in Metropolis for far too long and wonders why he has not come here sooner. Who's going to stop him? The Bat of Gotham? Yeah, right. A group of would-be naval bandits in the midst of trying to steal a prototype Navy nuclear type of vessel, if you're Chekhov in <laughs> Star Trek, in Gotham Harbor when Metallo decides he's the one that needs this more than they do. Metallo makes quick work of them and blasts them off the ship. With the nuclear reactor inside of the metal ship, the metal monster can now have his control of the city and those punks in those costumes with it. Meanwhile, in Arkham, Poison Ivy is on the floor and she doesn't look good. At least that's what she wants the guards to think. All she can muster out is Gotham is dying. Swinging from his bat line, Tim Drake, a.k.a. Robin the Boy Wonder, is pondering the night so far in Gotham. When he hears a call over the scanners, there is an explosion on the naval yard. Upon Robin's arrival, it's not one of the usual suspects in Gotham. It's a robot. The GCPD is on the scene, and they are quickly taken out by rocket launchers coming straight from the robot himself. This is not going to be an easy night, Robin thinks. Robin swings in and saves the officers as Bullock and Montoya arrive on the scene. And of course, Harvey has a bazooka. And just like that, the robot turns into a tank and drives through the police cars, almost killing Bullock and Montoya in the process. Robin thinks he may need reinforcements. 
Robin radios Alfred in the Batcave and explains the situation. Alfred says that Superman cannot be reached. They need someone that can match the strength of Superman, or at least come close. Alfred hesitates to suggest that Superboy might be the next bet, but he might be a little bit easier to reach. After all, he's in the Honolulu phone book. Robin gets in touch with Superboy's business manager, Rex Leach, and says that Gotham could really use his help. Rex tells Robin that Superboy is probably out uh, saving the world, quote-unquote. Robin knows that he's getting the runaround and proceeds to tell Rex all of his dealings and what he's trying to do using Superboy's names, like Superboy air fresheners, Superboy signed items, Superboy hand puppets, and so on and so on. Rex hurriedly hangs up the phone and Robin realizes it's all up to him now. Back in Honolulu, Superboy is in the middle of selecting the next Miss Kryptonite for the No Hope for Dope campaign. Tanya Moon, Superboy's on-again and off-again girlfriend reporter, isn't too fond of the kissing part of the contest, especially when he kissed and picked winner Roxy Leach, his business manager's daughter. Conflict of interest. Rex actually arrives at the beach to tell Superboy what Robin said. Tana confirms that it's Metallo in Gotham City, and just like that, Superboy is airborne. Racing through the streets of Gotham City is the rescue squad with Poison Ivy, and before the attendees can react, Poison Ivy has kissed one of them and commands him to attack the others. The ambulance crashes, and Poison Ivy, the deadly woman, walks away, free. At what was once Babylon Towers in the destroyed area where the clinch virus first erupted, Robin sits in the Redbird gathering readings. Alfred tells Tim to be very careful. That area is still not very good. While Robin is busy tracking Metallo through the area, Poison Ivy looks on. Just as Robin's tracker confirms that Metallo has been spotted, octopus-like tentacles break through one side of dilapidated buildings from Babylon Towers towards Robin. In that moment, Robin is being held upside down and face-to-face with Metallo. Metallo does not know who this boy is, but there will be no need much longer. Metallo will soon end him enough. Nothing will stop Metallo. At that moment, Superboy flies overhead, and not a minute too late, Metallo turns to fire at the Boy of Steel and throws Robin like a baseball towards the young flying superhero. Superboy thinks this might be one of the Flying Graysons, literally, or something like that. Once Superboy catches Robin, the two introduce themselves to one another. Superboy was really kind of hoping that he might run into Batman instead of this new Robin. The two post jabs and back and forth handed compliments at each other of who they think they should call in or who's the more inexperienced. Robin tries to take charge, but Superboy says he works much better on his feet. While Superboy takes to the skies again, Robin heads down an escalator. That's not an escalator, yep. Robin jumps down on top of a greenhouse, one of the few buildings left in the Babylon Tower area from the clench. Metallo grows to like 50 feet. Superboy flies at Metallo and tentacle-like fingers fire from Metallo. He electrocutes Superboy. Robin swings in quickly and sprays suppressant foam in Metallo's eyes. Now the monster can't see. Inside the greenhouse, Poison Ivy looks on as the two boys are trying to save the greenhouse and her. How sweet. Superboy, now free, punches Metallo and there's a tremendous explosion as pieces of the metal nemesis fall to the ground and what's left of some surrounding buildings. Robin says that Superboy and Metallo must have leveled a city block, or what's left of it. Superboy says, yeah, it happens all the time. Robin and Superboy begin their search for the reactor that Metallo stole. Unbeknownst to the two boys, a metal skull makes its way out of the rubble and has come to life. It's what's left of Metallo. As the two young men discuss retrieving the radioactive core themselves, 
or calling the authorities to survey the area, a sexy red-haired figure makes her entrance. Before Robin can warn Superboy who she is, she calls to the boy a steal and kisses him, just the way he likes it. Superboy picks her up in her arms and the two fly away. This is one scenario Batman did not prepare him for. Unless... Robin radios Alfred and tells him that the two are probably headed to Hawaii, the perfect paradise for Poison Ivy. Metallo's metal skull hears this as well. Later, Robin arrives back at the Batcave and tells Alfred there is no one else he can trust right now. Bruce wouldn't have given the key code to Robin if he didn't have a backup plan like this for the Man of Steel. Let's hope this little green ring will work on the Boy of Steel. To be continued. Kryptonite. Hurts. Which is why Batman keeps it in an overwhelmingly impenetrable vault at the Batcave. Well, more like a whelmingly penetrable vault. So like I said, this was something that I was real excited to get to do. And I was saying earlier, I know I had read this first issue, but going through it, I read it, I read it three times because I thought, you know, we were going to do it three weeks in a row. So I actually (laughs) read it the last three weeks and I read it again last night. And this was just a fun issue. And every time I read it, I'm, I constantly kept saying, I'm glad I'm restarting the show. I'm glad I'm restarting the show. So let's talk about the cover of this first. And I know Terrence always makes fun of me about saying, oh, this is poster worthy. I want a poster of this. I think this is so cool. It's not really hearkening back to an issue that I can recall. The Superman Batman officially became partners in 1954 uh, with issue 71, uh, the original world's finest. But this kind of feels like it's an homage to a lot of different covers of that era from the fifties and sixties and all that from world's finest where Superman would be a little bit higher in the, in the composition and Batman would be a little bit lower, but even just stuff like the buildings and the detail work and the bridges that are going around. But Tim and Connor look like no perfect Grummets does a fantastic job uh, with the illustration. I love the big clock behind him and seeing that big WF three. I always thought that was a really cool logo. So what are your thoughts on this uh, first cover for book one? Absolutely love it. I mean, I would get a poster of this in a heartbeat, just such a cool dynamic shot. It's one of those shots that if you think about it for more than a second, it's like, where is Robin jumping from? Who cares? Cause <laughs> right. it looks so cool. You know, I mean, they're in great poses that really kind of exemplify their skill slash power sets. You know, you got Connor in the back, you know, kind of flying up there and then Tim more lunging with his uh, trademark bow staff. And it even shows that their, you know, their different body types and builds, even their approach to going into action where, you know, since Connor can fly, he'll be more going, uh, you know, like head first. And whereas Tim would be maybe a little bit more, you know, this might be reading too much into it, but still being more reactive and reactionary, maybe going more on the defensive. I gotcha. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, he would be more, uh, you know, trying to look over the scene, try to make a game plan. You know, he's it's, it's less headstrong, and as we'll find out in the pages here, you know, just <laughs> rush, rushing into action like uh, right. like Superboy does. He would uh, be more, you know, trying to come up with a plan and everything. So, like I said, it might be reading too much into their poses, but I still feel like it captures both the characters and i have no doubt that uh 12 year old jay when he had this comic would uh put a piece of uh paper over robin to trace it so that i could <laughs> draw my own original character's costume over it <laughs> and everything just because that's such a such a cool shot of tim with his uh uh, legs thrust out and the bow staff and just the look of determination on both of their faces um, i mean i i love i love this cover yeah, this this cover's great. And spoilers, I think it's probably the better of the two covers where the the second cover is telling more of okay, this is this is what's happening in the issue. If you've already read it, you kind of got the idea of it. This one is just setting up the adventure and you're going, I have no idea how these two characters are getting together, but it is friggin' fantastic. This is the cover that's going to sell you on the comic. Right. The second definitely. one is, well, you already bought the first one, so here is where we're going with the second issue. Yeah. This is definitely a case of, this doesn't really happen in the book, but it's still awesome, so who cares? Right. Definitely. The other credits that you heard before uh, the synopsis, again, I want to kind of iterate, was the writers being both Chuck Dixon and Carl Kessel, which were both manning their respective titles being Superboy and Robin. So I know there was an interview somewhere and I'm sure somebody's going to pull it out and say, Oh, Rob, you should have read this on the show. And I couldn't find it. I know I had it. And it was probably any issue of comic scene or, or something somewhere along the way. But I think somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, that Dixon handled all of Tim Drake's writing on those pages and Carl handled Superboys, And when they were together, they were working out the conversations together and say, well, if I was writing Tim, he would, he would say this and Carl would say that. So you get a very distinct two voices, not that Dixon can't write Superboy because I know that he has in the past and Carl can write a good Tim Drake, but with both of them handling their respective characters, you get a really good feel of there are two separate voices and two different ideologies working in the same book and how they work out. Sometimes when somebody's writing, you know, a whole group of people together, you can kind of tell it's one writer's thought and that's fine. Mm. But I think this is a unique where you get the both of them working together and setting up their own thoughts and their own plots to work to work out the main part of the story what do you think about both of them writing this well they write both issues but this issue <laughs> together no i mean it, it definitely helps to make it where it doesn't feel like a robin issue featuring superboy or mm -hmm. a superboy issue featuring robin you have the unique perspectives that each respective writer brings to the characters and you, you have the collaboration of them you know co-plotting i assume but also you know writing the dialogue together to where you know it does feel like it's like you said they can each write the other character just fine but it's nice being able to have you know dixon who defined tim drake mm -hmm. and carl kessel who did lots of uh i haven't read a lot of the superboy solo issues maybe like the, the same first, here maybe like the first dozen or so. And then, you know, 
all of his appearances in the death and return of Superman arcs and everything. But I mean, Kessel, you know, made Superboy a, you know, 90s teenage boy, but still, you know, <laughs> sympathetic and a joy to read just uh, with his writing. So it's it's nice being able to get the two you know, let's say experts on these characters to collaborate so that it feels like a joint venture between the two rather than X gets the spotlight while Y is the backup or, you know, uh, vice versa. And one other part of the cover before we get into the story that I forgot about, there is actually a back cover that does have back artwork on it with being Poison Ivy holding the skull. Spoilers if you don't know Poison Ivy's in this. Holding the skull of Metallo, and it says, where have you been all of my life? So I like that it wasn't just a a black-backed cover with, you know, WF3 written on the back of it, that Grummet did do back covers for both of these, whether it's a full wraparound or it's just another image. So it's like one of the prestige format books. It's a 52-page issue with both of them. So this does make you feel like, hey, this is something special. The other thing I wanted to... I don't know if there's a big discussion here, but that Superboy gets the top billing on this as opposed to Robin, where Robin is, uh, Tim Drake's been the longer running character of the two. And I wonder if that's just doing a nod that Superman got top billing back in the day. So if it's, since it's Robin and Superboy, it would be Superman and Batman. So they just went that way. But that was something I was always like, huh, I wonder why Robin took second billing. It's probably just for that. Do you have any thoughts on? No, I billing? think that's exa- I, I, I actually thought about that because I was, I was kind of surprised that the, they didn't flip it for the second issue. Almost right. to be like, you know, Superboy and Robin and then Robin and Superboy. But I mean, Batman getting top billing over Superman really didn't even start occurring until you know the last you know 10 15 years yeah because it was always superman batman world's finest um i mean i wouldn't say always you know i'm sure there might be several examples <laughs> where that's not the case yeah but you're right the majority would be superman and batman yeah, and uh even in the classic world's finest like you were saying i'm pretty sure superman always got top billing over yeah. batman because for the longest time superman was actually the more popular and better selling character especially in the time when the original world's finest was being published so it makes sense for superman to get uh top billing so so yeah i think this is just a nod to that well let's move into the interior of the book and i just like the way now jay and i think are both looking at this digitally it's a little bit easier than pulling the uh oh uh, nope i'm actually reading my uh floppy wow then i i've got the floppy in my hand i'll keep my my digital up here and i like the um I'm going to call it a serpent. I can't think of what I want to call it. But where you get the monochrome you know, artwork of Metallo holding Robin upside down, you get all the text. Yeah, uh, you know, cool. uh, it's a cool credits page, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And then the back page does something very similar, giving you the preview of the, uh, the following. But Dixon does this well when he writes, and Carl tends to do a little more mystery and intrigue. So I think they do a flip, you know, where Dixon likes to start with with action right away. You get more of that in the second issue. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it doesn't happen here, but I like these shots where most of the panels are the same as six panel grid layout are, you know, the top one is showing the frog and then the water and the pond and all that. But then you get like the puddle of like the moss and the water in there until you get the, the metal foot. Mm-hmm. Now, if 
I was writing a Superboy and Robin comic, the team up of villains. I don't think if I had a hundred darts to throw <laughs> at all of the characters in DC that I would have pulled Metallo and Poison Ivy to fight off against Superboy and Robin, which we really don't see much for Poison Ivy till book two, but we won't talk about her in great detail probably in this episode yet. But Metallo was always one of those characters for me, and Michael Bailey's probably going to boo me for saying this. I just didn't get it. I do remember back in the day, and the day was a Wednesday, uh, when I first looked at this, I was like, Metallo? Like, really? And then when the book starts, I thought, oh, well, clearly this is going to be you know Superboy and uh, Metallo fighting. And then I was like, it's Tim? And Metallo, like, <laughs> how? How is this going to work? So so this is the part of the show where Jay is going to school Rob on why Metallo <laughs> is kind of cool. Because apparently I have not had much interaction with Metallo. So, Jay? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, like, super, like, familiar. I mean, mostly from, you know, Superman the Animated yeah. Series. And, I mean, even this. This is, I think, my first exposure outside of the Superman cartoon of... Metallo. So I've always kind of liked this weird, bulky, huge Metallo look just because it was the first, you know, comic version of him that I've ever read. I like the character fine. Amazo is one of those, you know, weird android villains that's, you know, maybe cool every now and then, but doesn't have a lot of depth. There is room for Metallo to go into like a lot of tragedy because, uh, you know, even just going off the Superman animated series, you know, he's a guy who was manipulated into believing he needed some cure for something that, you know, was given to him by Luthor, you know, spoilers, if you've not seen <laughs> those episodes of Superman, then given, you know, effectively immortality, but then he lost all of his humanity because of it. So there is a lot of tragedy there. Mm -hmm. I can't remember in the comics proper, like what was maybe created for the show, the cartoon versus what it is in the comics. themselves. I just pulled, it's still, I, sorry, I just oh, pulled go, up go his origin on DC fandom. This is John Corbin was a professional con man until he was fatally injured in a car crash. Uh, the dying Corbin was found by by a professor who was in cybernetics, and with that, and Superman spearheaded getting him this like robot body and you know all that stuff. And then it does. I'm skipping down here. Uh, before delivering the a killing stroke, he was abducted by Alex Luthor, who realized that his kryptonite heart was immensely valuable and wanted the pleasure of killing Superman for himself. So at some point, the kryptonite was used to uh, help bring him around and kind of swore like, oh, he would never hurt Superman. And then, of course, becomes an arch, an arch enemy. He's been in parts with Doom Patrol, has interacted with Brainiac, which is kind of cool. So Steel and all that other kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, a cool enough character, kind of like the irony of the thing that gives him life is the only thing that can kill Superman. But, I mean, yeah, like you, I would not have imagined <laughs> a team-up, but even then, we'll get into it, especially in the second half of this story, between him and Poison Ivy, but, you know, just keeping it very broad, that's not really what happens, and initially, it's just kind of, okay, well, you know, the, these stories aren't coming together as much as we want, but I also think it's better for it, because it's 
not as contrived as just, oh, let's just pair them together because we need a Superman villain and a Batman villain to, you know, fight a Superman and, you know, Batman family member. So I, I do I, I do kind of like that the uh, the two villainous threads are only ten- tangentially related mm-hmm. when they both ultimately have their own goals. And I think it works better for the story because of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Metallo's whole thing is he's he's kind of been done and over fighting in Metropolis and having to deal with Superman. So he has that realization, why haven't I come to Gotham and kind of, I can take over Gotham and what do I got to do? Fight a bat, you know, oh, yeah. no big deal. Steals the uh, reactor core out of the n- uh, nuclear vessel. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to make that joke all day. And uh, that's oh, kind shit. of his <laughs> modus operandi. If I can steal this thing, I can be the big bad in Gotham City and I can rule this town. And there's no super powered being. It's just some people in tights that I got to worry about. And then you kind of fold in Poison Ivy. And I always like, I'm always a sucker. Sometimes I think Poison Ivy is a one note villain. Like, oh, she likes plants and, you know, the, the city's trying to get rid of greenhouses or put in a highway and ruin this forest. And, but I'm always kind of a sucker, like, oh, she kind of half fakes her, uh, fakes a death. She's got to get into this ambulance and gets taken out. And that, there's more of that in a little bit. That's kind of telegraphed from just years of reading comics of like, oh, she's not really dying. This is just the way she's going to get out of Arkham and, you know, guys just can't help themselves <laughs> around uh, around Ivy. Really quick, there's not much here in these uh, couple pages, but anything that jumps out with you with Poison Ivy? I absolutely 100% dislike it when Poison Ivy has powers and can manipulate plant life and make things grow. I just, I, I find her much more interesting when she's, I mean, you know, maybe a normal person who maybe through years of, you know, working with toxins and everything has become immune herself, but not necessarily someone who has any powers or control over anything. Just a brilliant chemist who's an eco-terrorist yeah. who, you know, you can, you can see her point. But also the manner in which she goes about achieving her goals and everything is not heroic at all. So it's like, even though I understand what you're trying to do, your ends don't justify, you know, the actual means. So, you know, you're still a bad guy here. Yeah. I Isley. So, so I do like that she is more in that a normal person who is just using her own intelligence and cunning to achieve her goals rather than, oh, I can just make a bunch of vines grow through, you know, my telepathic plant control and then choke these guys. You know, she has to, she has to kind of think through it, which I think is, you know, nice and refreshing and much more. Yes. Pages eight and nine. First, the page eight. Anytime we get the hero shot of our hero uh, swinging in through the city, it's just a really cool shot. And I love breaking the panel lines with Tim's foot just ever so slightly in there, but him coming towards camera. And I like how this issue really doesn't do much explanation of where Superman is or where Batman is. All that we know is Batman's not in Gotham City. And through just a few lines of dialogue later on, well, like Superman's not around really either. And that's that's all you really need for it. And I love where it's like, oh, gee, if Batman were here, he would know how to like 
we've been with Tim long enough. He's he's got his foot set in Gotham City and can take care of most things here until he sees a giant, you know, ten foot robot. So <laughs> the couple exchanges I think are really cool here. Seeing on page nine with Metallo firing the rocket, blowing the squad car. It's got the big 86 on it coming towards the frame here. And then Tim swooping in and saving him. But the thing that made me laugh out loud again, for like the third time reading it last night, I almost texted you guys and said, I didn't know that I wanted Harvey Bullock to have a bazooka, but I want (laughs) Bullock to have a bazooka really bad from now on. And (laughs) I like how Matoy is like, is that that thing's not issued? And he says, what's the point? You know, <laughs> you know, you know, ju- just pointing that out, you know, just, just tell me. Where yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I think that's cool. So I had forgotten that Matoya and Bullock are in here just for a little bit. And then seeing Metallo be this gigantic tank, I was like, okay, this is Saturday morning cartoon in the best possible way. Why would the robot not be a gigantic tank and, Tim kind of has that, you know, revelation, too, of, like, what is going on? So through these sections, uh, what, what do you think about uh, this? what's going on at the moment? Yeah, to, to your point about Tim just being in the city alone with Batman nowhere around, I think that just shows just how much trust Bruce has in Tim to be able to take care of the city mm-hmm. on his own. And kind of contradicts, you know, the whole, well, Batman doesn't need partners, works alone, da-da-da. Because, no, he trusts his teenage sidekick enough to, uh, you know, leave the city to him while he goes and takes care of business elsewhere. So, without even explicitly stating it on the page, if you've never read the, uh, you know, a Robin comic before and are only marginally aware of you know batman and his mo and everything is seeing that well if batman's not here but robin is then robin must really know what he's doing and have batman's trust to be able to take care of anything while he's you know not in gotham you know this whole you know it's my city thing no one needs to help you know well clearly yeah if it's your city you know you still have people who you trust to help and i i really like that i like it when it's not Batman just being a jerk and not trusting anybody and, you know, having contingencies for everything, whatever. It's right. like, you know what, Tim, I trained you. I trust you. You know, here you go. So like I said, it's not explicit on the page because it's only coming across in a couple of lines of dialogue, but it still, you know, just shows how great of a character Tim is and how he stands on his own as not just Batman's partner and sidekick, but as Robin, just Robin period. Yeah. And I I think that's just, that's one of the fun things being where we are now that we're past the nightfall. We're past the contagion where Bruce had come back from having his back broken and then left again and come back and had Dick as Batman that Tim has been able to plant himself in Gotham city and is now working as his own superhero in his own book while still partnering up with Batman. Like you said, that Batman can be off world or wherever, be out of the city. And we don't have clumsily bumbling Tim Drake still making mistakes. And Oh, golly gee, you know, Alfred, how, how am I going to get out of this mess? Saying that about Alfred, that Alfred shows up here and we do get a shot of Superman on page 12 in the back computer, which is beautifully drawn. And I want to pause here really quick and saying we're in the Staz Johnson era of Robin. 
So looking at these issues again, going, wow, you know, how many more opportunities are we going to have Tom Grummet to be drawing all these characters? We get a, you know, just a quick one little shot of Superman on the back computer, but man, it's just, it's a nice shot, a nice elongated panel of the bat cave and you get the red bird in here and the discussion with Tim and Alfred of like, okay, here's what's going on. Tim knows, okay, not that I can't take care of Gotham city, but I can't fight a 10 foot robot that turns into a, a tank and, you know, Bruce could, but he's not here. We need somebody super powered. So who's the first person that Tim thinks of? It's of course, Superman, but he's not around. So I like the, the little joke that Tim and Alfred are having about like, yeah, I kind of hesitate who to ask, you know, you could reach out to Superboy, And then of course, Superboy's phone number is in the Honolulu phone book, which I <laughs> yeah. think is really incredibly, incredibly funny. And then we end up moving into uh, Hawaii. And I had forgotten that that's where Superboy's book really kind of takes place. He's not really in Metropolis at this point. He's he's operating out of here. So I don't have a lot of Superboy you know, reading under my belt. So I was doing a little bit of extra uh, homework here. So what do you think of the introduction of Superboy's cast of characters, his his business agents, and then his on-again, off-again girlfriend that's the TV reporter, and then his business agent's daughter is going to win the Miss Kryptonite <laughs> competition. So, like, I think it even says here at one point, this is almost like a Benny Hill a sketch at some point. So, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, these section of pages. I mean, I like the you know Robin and Alfred both working smart. It's like okay, we don't know how to fight a ten foot tall robot man, so let's ask the guy who has before. Duh. But you know, with that you know not working out, that still you know goes back to the you know having constant mistrust of you know every other hero and being stubborn and saying, oh no, I need to take care of this mm-hmm. myself. It's like. And that doesn't always work out. So I like that, you know, they acknowledge it's like, okay, even though this is Gotham and it's our home turf, you know, this is an unknown threat. So let's, let's go, you know, at least find out something from the guy who's actually fought him before. So I like that uh, line of uh, thinking. And also kind of to uh, circle back a little bit to, you know, my uh, Robin, you know, collection completion. At some point last year, I also bought, I think it was Corgi, the diecast metal uh, oh, uh, car maker. I love. I bought the, I bought the Redbird. Isn't so that a beautiful uh, piece? It is. It's great. And I, I, I just love, you know, Robin having his own car. And I think it's great that it can go from like a little, you know, hoopty coupe <laughs> that's very unassuming and everything to, you know, a pretty cool superhero car, the touch of a button. So I always like seeing that in the in the comics. Yeah, the introduction to Superboy is great. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, like Booster Gold, just <laughs> very much more. More in the, uh, hey, I'm going to be a hero, but what's the harm in making a few bucks off of it? (laughs) It's me, myself, Um, and I, (laughs) you know. Yeah, and the the fact that he's judging a Miss Kryptonite, you know, pageant or something is, I mean, it's very, very much something a teenage boy would, you know, die to find himself (laughs) in. So, I mean, it's not... 
remarkably PC, but it's right, right. I mean, I mean, it's 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 in with his character, yeah. And uh, and and it's, I mean, it's 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 a funny scene. It's it it introduces you to Superboy, you know, really well. I'm kind of impressed that in all of these pages, I don't believe he even mentions his tactile te- uh, telekinesis <laughs> once. I, Doesn't come up until much I, later. I, so. I have a note here that says. I wonder how long it is before Jay and I have to <laughs> remember Superboy's power or Superboy remind us first. So that's funny that the, we, we, we got the point first. <laughs> so like, I don't want to be the one to say it. And I think Jay is about ready to say it. So that's point <laughs> point for Jay. All right. Yeah. Didn't plan that. Just, uh, just the magic of a uh, live radio here, ladies and gentlemen. And on page 19, I think it is. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but, uh, the very bottom panel where he, Superboy is stopping his publicist, Leech, uh, unfortunately named Leech. Leech. Yeah. L- uh, little on the nose yeah, there. Looks, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, also kind of reminiscent of, uh, Action Comics number one. Yes. Cover. In spirit, if not in, uh, you know, like a direct homage. But, um, you know, you, you get a little bit of uh, Superman uh, lifting up that green car with uh, someone running around in the back here. Superboy stopping a uh, purple. I don't know where they what they call them, where, you're, where you are, Rob. You know, slug, slug bugs. So slug if bug, I was uh, next to you and I said purple slug bug and I hit you in the shoulder, do you do that? I mean, not anymore. Well, I'm just saying, like, like, see, yeah, yeah. (laughs) growing up, that I had a best friend of mine that he would just slug the crap out of you in the shoulder. You'd be like, ow. I've also heard a punch Punch buggy. buggy, Yeah, slug bug is uh, pretty much what I've known them as. But uh, yeah, so like I said, it's fun. Uh, Nice little homage there, either unintentional or intentional. Not sure. But it's a good introduction to Superboy and how, you know, immature he is. But that also kind of sets up. One aspect of the story, particularly with Poison Ivy, but also how you can still see he still has a heroic bent to him. Just it's not as direct and refined and obvious as Robin. Right. The scene that I liked with uh, Rex Leach, his full name here, is it's a very Batman thing. And and why wouldn't it be a Batman thing to do when Tim's trying to say, hey, I need help with Superboy and... You know, Rex is like, oh, he's probably out saving the world. And it's starting to go through the spiel. And where Tim was like, uh, all right, y- you want to play through that? You know, how about the Superboy air fresheners and the, mm-hmm. you know, Superboy animated cell and the signed numbers where Tim is like, if you don't get me through to Superboy, I'm just, I'm going to own you right now. You know, I'll, I'll delete all your files, whatever that is. But just the way that Grummet draws him in panel two or the bottom section, actually panel five, right above the 14, just that look on his mm-hmm. face where Tim was almost like, go ahead, try me. You know, we need to get yeah. Superboy to Gotham kind of, ASAP and you need to do it right now. <laughs> yeah. Kind of disgruntled, very annoyed, but uh, still determined like, okay, you want to mess with me, you know, go right ahead. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do what my mentor has taught me to do. So here we go. Yeah. I find it kind of funny and it's done that way to be a little, I don't bad, bad choice of words here, Rob. I'm going to go with it. Really tongue in cheek that the winner of the contest is Leech's own daughter and the look on Superboy's face 
when she plants one on him and he ends up, you know, like falling off of the falling off of the stairs. I was like, this is your business partner's daughter. Like that's, that's a huge conflict of interest, a conflict of interest. So as much as Superboy's libido is working in one direction, he has that forethought of like, Oh, this is real. This should not be happening right now. So just that, that wide eyed look on his face is really kind of funny. And when uh, his news reporter, you know, Girl Friday there, I guess you could say, and, you know, and he's like, you know, you're the greatest, Roxy. And she's like, oh, she is now. <laughs> and he's like, uh, 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 the contest entrance. That, that's uh, that's all I meant. Yeah, it's it's fine. Like I said, not necessarily PC, but yeah, still, like, uh, you know, re- relatively harmless. I mean, you know, the, these contests go on all the time. You know, Superboy. That's part of his character, and especially of the time, this is very tame compared to a lot of other, uh, you know, hyper-sexualized comics that were coming out, you know, at this time in in uh, in the industry. Yeah. So the girlfriend is Tanya Moon, was a reporter for K O N A. TV. She was responsible for getting the first exclusive footage of the superhero known as Superboy. Just after the interview, she developed a brief relationship with the Boy of Steel. So she goes clear back to you know the death of Return of Superman, getting that that first. I don't know if she was initially the death of Return of Superman, but like I said, the first interview, and she uh, does last the DC Comics for quite a while. Looking at her, you know, page here, so. Superboy's really not like, okay, what's going on? He's still in the midst of the contest and talking with his girlfriend. That's not till his girlfriend gets like the, the scoop of like, hey, this is what's going on in Gotham City. And that's the thing that uh, causes him to fly away. So I like where his sense of duty kind of comes in. And just that th- shot of him leaving, flying up into the air where we had that great shot of Robin swinging into Gotham City, we kind of get like a counterpart with Superboy flying out of Hawaii. Yeah, that's yeah. Good parallels there. Yeah, it didn't necessarily occur to me, but yeah, I, I like that. I like how uh, we're introduced to Robin uh, in the one manner, and then you know, Superboy is introduced in a completely different manner, <laughs> a completely different type of scene. But we still get to see him have uh, you know that look of determination, knowing okay, a job needs to needs doing, so I'm going to go do it. So you know, Robin is introduced as a hero immediately. Superboy, you know, we kind of have to get to know him a little bit first. But uh, I still I still like that because Grummet has that nice look of determination, drew that nice look of determination on his face to show that yeah, when Superboy means business, you know he's he's got his mind set on it, and he. He will do business. It just uh, might take him a few minutes to get there. You know, and just uh, for a brief little bit that uh, we don't get a chance to talk about, you know, costumes a whole lot for other heroes. Because, well, we already talked about Robin's costume and Batman's costume. But just for Superboy's costume, I don't – three minds. This is really weird. So back when he was initially introduced into comics, I bought his costume hook, line, and sinker. Never thought much about it. You get a few years past it and start seeing him in the costume and you go, what? Like this screams 90s. Everything that we were saying about Tim Drake's costume of how they created a classic look for the character that is timeless, that has been on the silver screen, that has been animated. It's an action figure form. It's just stayed pretty much consistent 
Tim Drake's costume is kind of like the atypical Robin suit that you will see. And Superboy's, once you get a few years past it, you go, this just screams the 90s, if I've ever seen it, the shaved side of the head, the glasses. <laughs> now looking at it in 2022, I'm looking at it going, there's a reverence for this that I didn't think I would initially feel that, yes, it is very much of the 90s, but I find it simpler if if that makes any sense. Yes, it's busy with the, the belt strap and stuff, but seeing what we got in Young Justice, which they, you know, Bendis was having, you know, Gleason for a little while, put spikes on the collar and really overemphasizing it where I started going, no, like Superboy's costume was really good. You know, eventually he would get the jeans and the black t-shirt look for Superboy. So do you have like a, the J Yaws preferred look for Superboy? I think I'm telegraphing mine as much as I like the black t-shirt. I really kind of like this. I was able to find the DC universe classic Superboy figure about two or three years ago of this costume. And I absolutely love this costume. So that's, that's my two cents on Superboy's look. I unironically love the leather jacket look for Superboy. It is very nineties. It also fits Connor, at least at this point in Mm -hmm. time. And I mean, even if you take away the, the jacket and you know, the belts and the thigh strap that makes no sense, but whatever it was the (laughs) nineties, the bodysuit itself is actually really has a really cool design. The thigh strap I, I think actually works because it it's like the red trunks on Superman's <laughs> suit. It helps break up the colors. So that one yellow strap on his right thigh helps break up that, you know, just just red of the leggings there. But I mean it, just looking at it with just the bodysuit itself, without the the extra teenage boy nineties <laughs> stuff. It, it's actually really cool. It It's similar to, like, the Eradicators look, Yeah, yeah. But it's different enough. And, I mean, I love on Superman, you know, classic red, yellow, and blue. But for other members of, this, like, the Superman family, I don't want them to just have a another version of his look. You know, I, I, I think this is, you know, still a very much... Superman family look with the 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 shield and everything, but having like the the black up at the top, and I'm pretty sure that goes down the. I, I believe too. it does. But having that, and then having that broken by the shield, and then going into the blue of the torso, which leads down to the red of the leggings and the black boots. I think that's a really really good, unique look that is very much reminiscent of Superman's costume without looking exactly like Superman's yeah. costume. So I really like that. Supergirl has a lot of um, costumes like that 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 I think are really cool too. So I definitely like this, and I think it's you know the best look that Connor has had, and one of the best you know of any Superboy look that uh, that we've ever gotten. So I uh, definitely definitely love this this costume on it. Very well said. So we get the little bit from Poison Ivy. I always kind of liked this about Poison Ivy, whether she can, you know, make sunflower seeds turn into gigantic tarantula monsters. But I always liked that her kiss was venomous and there was a little bit of mind control and that eventually, you know, the they would die off and she could kind of control them for a little bit. So I liked that part of her power set. 
and being able to, if nothing else, get what she needs from the plants or whatever. So she's able to escape. Uh, this was a scene that I want to talk about coming up here on 25 with Robin being at the Babylon area from Batman Legacy storyline, from that whole thing that we just covered not all that long ago on the show, now that we've had a four-month hiatus. So it's probably been about six months ago. But being able to revisit the clench here in just a moment and the surrounding uh, blocks of the Babylon Tower where Tim is inside of the Redbird. So I like that Dixon was able to tie this back in here, which is why I slotted this story where I did, that there's a little bit of a breather after the clench storyline in Batman Legacy, and then this falls right into the year that it was released, that Dixon still puts this in here. So I thought that was a nice little callback for anybody that's been reading the Robin and Batman universe side of the storyline. You get a little bit of history of like, well, why is Robin in this dilapidated part of Gotham City and why does it look so bad? So as I was reading this you know, a couple nights ago, I was going, oh, Babylon Towers, that was the whole building that ended up burning and that's where the clench really started spreading from uh, from the beginning. So I uh, know this is before you were on the show, but have you read Batman Legacy and Contagion and what did you think of this little call out? I mean, I've read them. It's been, you know, decades right. since I've read them, but I've definitely read them, listened to the episodes, of course, you know, appreciated your discussions of it and everything. But yeah, I mean, it, it does help that it's, you know, Dixon writing both. So, I mean, of course, he's going to more likely to draw in something that he introduced and was part of a story that he was largely responsible for telling. But no, I like it. I like that it gives a little bit of continuity. It's like, hey, even with um, you know all this other stuff that's going on, it's not immediate that the city recovers. You know, we've still got you know a big crumbled building that people don't want to get near because they're still afraid mm -hmm. that the uh, clinch could uh, have a resurgence. Which, uh, spoiler alert, it kind of does eventually. <laughs> yeah, uh, but. But not in this story. So no, I mean, it's it's nice bit of continuity. I mean, it's uh, not so in your face as to you feel like missing out on something if you haven't outright read Legacy. But if you have, then you're like, oh, okay. So yeah, that's that's still abandoned. You know, I, I still get that. And I remember when that happened. So so yeah, just a, just a nice little bit of ongoing continuity yeah. there. And uh, this is right around the same area and block that Poison Ivy escapes from. So our stories are starting to combine here where Robin's tracking Metallo. Poison Ivy is now on the scene. And from the insert page from the opening of the book where we see Robin being held upside down, Dr. Octopus from uh, this, uh, uh, No Way Home show. Oh, no, it's not uh, Dr. Octopus. So Metallo and all his tentacles get Robin. So this is where that interior shot was in the inside of the book with Robin being upside down and much like I had envisioned this being the end of part one, you know, of the, of the TV series tune in next week where Robin's upside down. He's probably seconds away from getting blasted by Metallo, but who shows up Superboy? So another great shot of Superboy coming in. This is a beautiful shot. As much as I liked the one of him leaving Honolulu, I believe this is the 
big character entrance for Superboy arriving in Gotham City. Something I just uh, realized in looking over the dialogue that I didn't notice, you know, before when I reread this a couple weeks ago, you know, Superboy misunderstands the situation because he's like, oh, crap, Metal has already torn through a bunch of the city, not realizing that this is an abandoned (laughs) part of Gotham. But I mean, that that was also, you know, not to say that, you know, Superboy's dense or naive. He wouldn't know. He could not possibly know about this. So it's kind of, you know, just fun that he misunderstood what's going on, but still realizes that Metallo needs to be stopped regardless. Yeah. And then the, again, if if I was writing the story, how are we going to introduce Superboy and Robin? I don't think I would have said, let's shoot Robin out of a cannon that's inside of Metallo and have Superboy catch Robin. Their exchange is really very clever, very, very funny. It's on the nose sometimes, but Dixon handles it very well. And your Superboy's like, so I've only got one question. Who are you? And Tim's like, me? I'm Robin. I'm the one who threatened your agent to get you here. So I I like this whole thing. Like, while a fight's going on, the two of them are trying to figure out, okay, so who are you? What are you? You know, why why don't we just get a hold of Batman? And you're just... Yeah, you're not Superman. It took you eight hours to get here. <laughs> right. And Superboy's on the defensive says, less than seven. <laughs> <laughs> Which, this just had me going right back to Young Justice with you and I. I'm like, this is where, like, you needed to be here. This needed to be your first episode on the Dre, because it's conversations that we've had on that show are literally the framework is literally being laid out right here for what would become young justice. And I think nice, a bit of poetic symmetry. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that Dixon and Kessel are having a little bit of fun with the humor in this, where Superboy is going to fly off and, you know, he says, you know, no problem, boy wonder. I think I work best on my feet where it's, it's almost the reverse of the dynamic of Superman and Batman where Superman would probably be more, we need to scan the area. We need to see what's going on. And Batman would probably be saying the, no, thanks boy scout. I work best on my feet. And he would go off on his own. The reverse is happening here, which I think is really kind of funny. And the funnier thing is the stairs that Robin is going down. Oh, it's just Metallo. (laughs) Yeah. Which, uh, since Terrence, unfortunately, can't be on this episode today, he did point out to us that uh, the reason Metallo can do everything he does in here is this happened uh, pretty soon after the Underworld Unleashed event, where a bunch of DC villains like made a deal with the devil and got like uh, upgrades. Like, I think Killer Moth <laughs> became the weird... Char- Charaxis or yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, Like a literal living moth. You know, Metallo, apparently, I'm not sure the full scope of the deal, but he got the ability to, I guess, absorb and manipulate any amount of technology or metal to do whatever he wants. That's why he can turn into a tank or a train or a giant bazooka or elevators or escalators, whatever. So that's that's why Metallo is slightly different here. And also, I guess, doesn't need a kryptonite heart because that's only kind of part of uh, the story for him because he's still running but doesn't seem to have the uh, kryptonite power source that's why he's going after the nuclear warheads and then eventually something else that will come up at the end yeah yeah so a little little tangent that uh that i'm speaking on behalf of terrence who brought that to our attention so thank you thanks terrence so there's a, a 
plenty of write-ups and stuff on Metallo. You can find them on DC Fandom uh, Wikia link there that you'll see in the show notes that I'll, I'll put in here so you can find some more on Metallo and some of these other characters. The rest of this book moves at a pretty good pace. You get a really cool fight scene with Robin spraying some fire suppressant material in Metallo's eyes and Superboy basically punching the crap out of Metallo and all crumbling to the ground. So what they're really looking for is the nuclear reactor that he stole and sees all the broken pieces. You see the skull of Metallo hanging from, you know, some rebar. But the bigger thing that ends up happening is Poison Ivy has been watching a lot of this. She was in the greenhouse uh, below some of the battle and was worried at some point that, you know, they were going to come crashing into it and kind of thought like, oh, they're they're trying to save my greenhouse. And I don't think the two two guys really knew what was going on. They were just trying to stop this. But the big thing that happens here is Superboy... His libido is starting to get reactivated here and is thinking with something else at the moment. And before Tim can have a chance to really say anything, Superboy pulls the bull. Hey, how are you? You know, I've been waiting for you my whole life. And Poison Ivy kisses Superboy, which if you're a Batman fan, you know, that's like the kiss of death. And you have this really awesome expression that Grummet draws here at the bottom of the page where Superboy and Poison Ivy are kissing where Tim is like, hey, and you know, Tim gets the shove and Superboy is flying away with his uh, new love. And where is the worst place in the world you could possibly take Poison Ivy? Hawaii. That is full of all this vegetation and all of this growth. Before we move to the last couple pages, what do you think about uh, the fight sequence and then Superboy and uh, Poison Ivy? Yeah, like you said, it's uh, really well paced. There's you know quite a bit of dialogue going through here, but it still doesn't detract from the scene itself. It kind of adds to it, especially as the the boys have this confrontational chemistry <laughs> with their differing styles and everything, like you were saying. So I like that Robin is about to give Superboy, you know, credit for you know, hey, stopping Metallo, but oh wait. That also took away all the support beams and everything, and it's going to bring the building, and the building comes crashing yeah. down. So, you know, that's fun. Like, like you said, it's very well paced. You get enough conflict from them that you can understand where, I mean, you know, they're both coming from. We tend to side with Robin more because he's, you know, the more level-headed of the two. But even Superboy is like, well, I mean, you know, I did what had to be done, so, uh, you know... I stopped Metallo, or so he thinks. So, you know, why are you, why, why are you, you know, being like that? You know, I've, the day saved. Hooray. Just thank me later. Like I was saying earlier about Metallo and Poison Ivy's plans intersect, but they don't intertwine. Yeah. You know, even Ivy, you know, can see all the havoc and she's even like that monster, you know, he's, you know, destroying everything. So she's not like, oh, hey, this big metal guy, I could team up with him for some yeah. reason because he's bad. <laughs> you know, she still has her own plans and Metallo has his. They don't combine into one plan. They just are independent from each other, which, again, I mean, it's kind of refreshing, keeps it from being too contrived. Like, well, why would they be teaming? Right. Up? Because they really they really don't. It's more just like, OK, we got to stop Poison Ivy, but crap we gotta stop metallo too <laughs> yeah i like that and then uh you know this is leading into the uh final stinger here but it's um you know cool that uh 
like I was saying before, that, you know, Metallo is looking for, you know, that, you know, unattainable power source, you know, first going with the nuclear warheads, but now he pieces together from overhearing Robin's uh, interaction with Alfred or conversation with Alfred that, oh, hey, he might have something even better than a nuclear warhead. So uh, why don't I tag along here? So that leads us into the final couple of pages here, which uh, I guess uh, uh, you'll take back over so we can talk over those. This is always the Batman is always prepared. And I like it that Batman trusts Tim enough to know everything that Batman knows. Like, well, you really, like, at least this version of Batman and Robin right now, like the longer people would write it, since you start getting into the Grant Morrison's where Batman is holding more back from everybody. At this point, he may be keeping Nightwing at arm's length at some points in this, and maybe Oracle to an extent, but the person he really trusts the most is Tim, that, you know, Tim's able to use, like, the DNA, you know, handprint scanner and the retina scanner that prepared as Batman is. In the absence of Batman, Robin should be as prepared as Batman is, that he is able to get in to the containment unit and pull out the kryptonite ring to be able to take down Superboy if he has to, which I want this so bad from a Chuck Dixon comic. And I'm sure it's, mm-hmm. we're, we're never going to see it because we're past the point of the time where Clark or excuse me, Clark, where Bruce would take Tim downstairs and say, I've shown you everything, Tim, but in the event that Superman were to turn on the world or turn against the world, here's the one thing that we can use to take out Aquaman and Wonder Woman and the Flash Tim knows that. So it makes Tim just as dangerous as Batman would be. But I get the feeling from Tim here, he knows that this is a last resort. Like, I didn't want to have to do it, but said if we can't even the odds against Superman and Batman, hopefully we can do it against, you know, Superboy. I'm not crazy about this either, Alfred, but it's the only way. Like, Tim knows. Rather than try, you know, all these different plans and ideas, the end result is I'm probably going to need this ring because if I couldn't stop Metallo, there's no way I'm going to stop Superboy. So seeing this shot that I think we've seen in like the Tower of Babel and some other stories and even I have a couple World's Finest issues where Batman has like green bat gloves punching Superman. So this is kind of a a call a call back to some of those classic things where Batman has to put on the green kryptonite ring. So it feels dirty is the only thing that I can think of like oh Tim Tim shouldn't have to resort to doing this but it at the same time it kind of works. So it's kind of a cool scene but seeing it as a Tim Drake fan I go isn't there another way Tim but Deep down, being a Batman fan, you know, there's probably not. Yeah, I mean, as tired as I am of Batman and Superman constantly being in conflict. Yeah, yeah. And I could go a thousand years without ever seeing Batman punch Superman ever again. And it would still be too soon. (laughs) I like at least, you know, the spirit and the idea of this for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, that both Robin and Alfred are both like, okay, I don't want to have to do this. But if it's the only way, it's the only way. I like that Tim is even like, I'm not even sure if this is going to work. Yeah, yeah. But it's the only chance that I have. But in a broader sense that you were kind of hinting at, it goes back to 
Tim becoming Robin and how he earned it. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't just put on the costume and say, oh, hey, I'm Robin now. He did that to save Batman. And then Batman said, okay, you can train to be Robin, but you're not Robin yet. And then, you know, that's what Tim went through over the next, you know, you know, couple of months or years in continuity, however long it took for him to earn his place as Robin, to train, to earn Batman's trust, to earn the chance to be in the costume fighting alongside Bruce. So this is, you know, more of that, of he earned Bruce's trust. He earned the right to wear the red and green suit. He earned the right to get his own updated suit. He earned the right to be able to watch over Gotham in Batman's absence. So this is just an extension of that. Even if, you know, the details of it, I'm like, okay, yeah, punching with a kryptonite ring, that's old that was old hat in ninety seven, it's old hat in twenty twenty two. But still, just the idea of it, the spirit of it, the hesitation in the story that it's like, well, I'm not doing this just to assert, you know, superiority over Superboy. It's I need to stop him because if he's under Poison Ivy's control, then he needs to be snapped back into reality. But even then, I'm not sure it's going to work. But we don't have any other choice. Yeah. So I at least I, I at least like how it's presented in the story. Yeah. And that is the end for part one and the end of the episode. So the four month hiatus that the show took, there was no part of me that thought, all right, there's 52 pages in both of these books. So I could probably break them over four episodes. I think I'm going to leave this intact. We've been gone long enough. This deserves to be at the current runtime before I edit. We're at one hour and 39 minutes, one hour and 40 minutes exactly <laughs> right now. So, and I haven't even put the synopsis in here yet. It is great to be back. And barring another nine years, I don't see any stoppage <laughs> of, oh, Rob needs to take another another four months off again. So we're going to get back into the bi-weekly release schedule, and we'll hopefully start recording and banking some episodes so we can make that happen. A big, hearty welcome to Jay Yaws being part of the show. So if people are unfamiliar with you and they want to discuss with you beyond this, out on the interwebs where can the good people get a hold of you you can find me on twitter my personal handle is at j-a-y-a-w-s and i share comic-y things and occasionally write for my own uh, little blog at comic pause like you pause a video game or a movie so comic p-a-u-s-e so yeah i'd love to chat and interact and uh yeah thanks again for having me rob it's glad to it's glad. <laughs> it's good, and I'm glad <laughs> to be back on the microphone, period, uh, but especially uh, talking comics with yeah. you. Yeah, this is going to be a, a good time, and I think we're coming into some really cool Tim Drake stories. I know I've been saying it for a while, and we're coming into some that I know me personally. I've not read in a very long time, if ever. You can follow me at DrummerRob10 on Twitter, and you can follow my other show if you're into music and the band Kiss. You can follow myself and the Caruso's Nick and Nico at RBTE Podcast, and uh, we talk about all things Kiss. So, on the behalf of Terrence and Ryan, who aren't here, and our new co-host, Jay, I'm Rob, and you've been listening to the BatmanUniverse.net, and more importantly, you've been listening to Robin 
everyone loves Drake. It's good to be back, and we will see you guys in a couple weeks. Take care. Must have been a miracle It's been a hell of a ride Destination still unknown It's a fact of life If you make one wrong move With a gun to your head You better walk the line Or you'll be left for Thanks for listening to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake podcast. This has been brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net. Tim Drake, Robin, and all Batman-related characters are under copyright of DC Comics. This podcast is solely for entertainment purposes, so no infringement is intended by this show. This show is not a good revenue stream. Actually, there's not a stream at all. All music and sound clips are under copyright by their respected copyright holders. So there should be no need to send the Penguins lawyers after us for ill-gotten gains because... There are none. You can get a hold of the show a few different ways. We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. You can also email in at Robin ELTD Podcast at Yahoo.com. Our Facebook page can be found at www.facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. And as always, you can message directly over at the BatmanUniverse.net. So email, tweet, or message us. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your comments or responses on the show. The show you're listening to can be found a few different ways through iTunes and Windows Media, also over at our host, TVU. Leave us a review on iTunes if you listen there. It'll help spread the word of the show. Make sure you head over to the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman and Robin. Thanks for listening to the show and hearing why everyone loves the Drake. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. Take care.